Well, I invite you and encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. So you'll need a Bible. If you don't have one, we want to give you one. It's a gift. So the guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, get their attention. They'll get one of those Bibles to you. Keep it. As I say, it's our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. Bring it back with you next week and each week because we always look at Scripture together as part of our worship. Today, Luke chapter 1. I've been in church my entire life. In all of my 57 years, I've heard very little about the mother of Jesus, Mary. Now, part of the reason for that is there's very little that's actually said about her in in the Bible. She's mentioned by name only in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and Acts. Mark only mentions her name in passing, and that's in connection with describing the family of Jesus. John, Paul, Peter, James, and Jude never mention her name at all. Matthew prefers to refer to her as his mother, that is Jesus' mother, or the child's mother. Outside of the first four books of your New Testament that we call the Gospels, Mary appears only twice, once in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, And once in an oblique reference by Paul to the Lord being, quote, born of a a woman. Within the Gospels, information on Mary is quite sparse. Luke, that we're going to see today, has a birth narrative that comprises by far the majority of the references to the Virgin Mary. Outside the birth narratives, the only references to Mary in the Gospels are found in the mid-ministry incident where she and other sons are seeking to talk to Jesus, prompting his explanation that his true mother and true brothers are those who do the will of God. And then there's one other reference in Luke to the blessedness of the mother who bore him and those who hear the word of God and observe it. The Gospel of John has appearances of Mary in the marriage, the wedding at Cana, and then at the, at the cross. And outside of what we're going to look at today, something called the Magnificat, and a dialogue with an angel that announces to Mary that she is going to bear the Messiah, Mary utters a grand total of 22 words recorded in Scripture. There's not a whole lot then about Mary. That explains one reason why in my life in church I haven't heard a whole lot about her. But another reason we hear little about Mary in evangelical churches like ours is, is that so much has been made of her within Roman Catholicism. And I'm going to talk a good bit in the first part of the message today about what Roman Catholicism actually teaches with regard to Mary. I do that as an instruction for our people, but also for those of you that may be here from a background other than one that's immersed in the Bible and strictly sticks to what the Bible has to say about any topic or person, including the person of Mary. So I'm hoping that this will be instructive for you. Please understand that I do not go through these things to be pejorative or certainly to be disrespectful or unkind, but to be informative and hopefully to be helpful. So one reason that we are understandably wary of talking about Mary is the way in which others have talked and have taught about her. Let me read for you a prayer of piety that is directed to Mary. 
O mother of perpetual help, thou art the dispenser of all the goods which God grants to us miserable sinners. And for this reason, he has made thee so powerful, so rich, and so bountiful that thou mayest help us in our misery. Thou art the advocate of the most wretched and abandoned sinners who have recourse to thee. Come then to my help, dearest mother, for I recommend myself to thee. In thy hands I place my eternal salvation, and to thee do I entrust my soul. Count me among thy devoted servants, take me under thy protection, and it is enough for me. For if thou protect me, dear mother, I fear nothing, not from my sins, because thou wilt obtain for me the pardon of them, nor from the devils, because thou art more powerful than all held together, nor even from Jesus, my judge himself, because by one prayer from thee he will be appeased. But one thing I fear, that in the hour of temptation I may neglect to call on thee and thus perish miserably. Obtain for me, then, the pardon of my sins, love for Jesus, final perseverance, and the grace always to have recourse to thee, O Mother of perpetual help. Now, Alphonsus Liguori is a well-known, respected figure, and he was an influential Catholic bishop of the past. His teachings have been available for over 250 years. He was declared venerable by the church in the year 1796. He was beatified in 1816, canonized as a saint in 1839, and declared to be a doctor of the church in 1871 by Pope Pius IX. Now, there are only 33 doctors of the church, and Alphonsus Liguori is one of that elite number. To be such a doctor means that his writings were carefully examined and approved by the Pope, the supreme teacher in Roman Catholicism. Therefore, his teachings are believed by faithful Catholics, especially since they carry the endorsements of the church. The the Nahil uh, Abstat, which means in Latin, nothing objectionable, and the Imprimatur, that's the official permission from the church to put something in print, His book that has gone through 800 editions called The Glories of Mary has all of that. And so I'm going to read for you some of what he says in that book regarding Mary. Mary not only, he says, assists her beloved servants at death and encourages them, but she herself accompanies them to the tribunal seat of God. She is the only hope of sinners, for by her help alone can we hope for the remission of sins. He falls and is lost who has no recourse to Mary. If God is angry with the sinner and Mary takes him under her protection, she withholds the avenging arm of her son and saves him. No one can be found more fit for this office than Mary who seizes the sword of divine justice with her own hands to prevent it from falling upon and punishing the sinner. When we have recourse to this divine mother, not only may we be sure of her protection, but that often we shall be heard more quickly and be thus preserved. If we have recourse to Mary and call on her holy name, then we should, if we call on the name of Jesus, our Savior, who is our judge, and it belongs to him to punish, but mercy alone belongs to the Blessed Virgin as, Virgin as a patroness meaning that we more easily find salvation by having recourse to the mother than going to the son. All power is given to thee in heaven and earth, and nothing is impossible to thee who canst raise those who are in despair to the hope of salvation. 
At the command of Mary, all obey, even God. Meaning, to say that God grants the prayers of Mary is as if they were commands, since the mother then should have the same power as the son, rightly has Jesus, who is omnipotent, made Mary also omnipotent. Though, of course, it's always true that where the son is omnipotent by nature, the mother is only so by grace. Be comforted then, O you who fear. Breathe freely and take, o cur- and take courage, O wretched sinners. This great virgin who is the mother of your God and judge is also the advocate of the whole human race. Fit for this office, for she can do what she wills with God most wise. For she knows all the means of appeasing him. Universal, for she welcomes all and refuses to offend no one. O Immaculate Virgin, Virgin, we are under thy protection. We beseech thee to prevent thy beloved Son, who is irritated by our sins, from abandoning us to the power of the devil. Rejoice, O Virgin Mary, for thou alone hast destroyed all heresies throughout the world. Much more could be read to make the point, but I've belabored that enough so that you see that much, much emphasis is placed upon, upon Mary. And as I've said, the Bible actually has very little to say. But we're going to see what it does have to say is important and therefore should not be ignored. So today we'll see the problems that have been associated with teaching regarding Mary. And then we'll see how what we know about her can be helpful to us today. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. We come to you through God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do so because there is but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We thank you for him. We thank you for his work and his life and his death on the cross. We thank you for the difference that he has made in our lives. Help us then to focus as we think today of his earthly mother. Help us to move from her, move from every person and thing ultimately to him. Because he is indeed the Messiah. And he is the one through whom you receive glory. And he who glorifies the Son glorifies the Father. We ask you to help us today in Jesus' name. Amen. On the back of your program that you should have received on the way in, we have an outline for today's message. I encourage you to take a look at that so that you can follow along. And I say there that all Christian women should, first of all, be aware of the errors that are taught regarding Mary. And the first of those errors is this, that she was immaculately conceived. Immaculately conceived. Now, what is that? When Mary was, according to this teaching, it's it's an error, but according to this teaching, when Mary was conceived in the womb of her mother, she was immaculate. That is, she was perfected by virtue of having been kept from the stain of original sin. That Mary, unlike you and me, unlike every other person save Jesus, came into this world and, in fact, from her very conception, was not uh, not, uh, beholden, not uh, stained by original sin, and thus never committed sin, as we will see later. So the Immaculate Conception, many believe... And many Roman Catholic friends to whom I have talked over the years believe that the Immaculate Conception refers to the conception of Jesus in Mary. Now, it is true that the Bible teaches that the conception of Jesus in Mary was miraculous. 
She was a virgin at the time she conceived. She was a virgin at the time she gave birth to, to Jesus. And so the Bible teaches that. Roman Catholicism believes that rightly, and we do as well. But the Immaculate Conception is not the conception of Jesus and Mary, but rather the conception of Mary and her mother. Now, it surprises then some of my Roman Catholic friends when I explain to them that the Bible says nothing about Mary's mother. We have no idea who Mary's mother was. Tradition says her mother was someone named Saint Anne, but as I say, we have no idea who that was. And the reasoning goes something like this. If Mary is going to bear a sinless Savior, then she herself needs to be sinless. But you see, if you take that logic back another generation, then Mary's mother would need to be sinless as well, right? And then before that and before that, at some point, God's going to need to do a miracle. And the Bible teaches he did that miracle in the virgin conception of Jesus. But the Immaculate Conception is something that was declared by the Pope in the year 1854 to be a dogma that must be believed by all the faithful. And this is what the Immaculate Conception pronouncement says. The doctrine which holds the Blessed Virgin Mary to have been from the first instant of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God in view of the merits of Christ Jesus, the Savior of mankind, preserved free from all stain of original sin, was revealed by God, and is therefore to be firmly and constantly believed by all the faithful. So that's a pronouncement in, you see the year there, 1854, by Pope Pius IX, with regard to the Immaculate Conception of Mary. We don't know anything about her birth from the Bible. We know nothing about her mother, but this now is something that must be believed. There is no recourse given to Scripture in order to try to prove the Immaculate Conception, save one verse. In Luke chapter 1 and verse, Luke chapter 1 and verse 28, and I'm going to put on the screen for you, we're going to have on the screen for you what the English translation of the Latin version of this verse says. The angel being come in said unto her, Hail, notice, full of grace. The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. Now, that idea, full of grace. Now, you see verse 28 in your Bible as something like highly favored one. And that's as it should be. The reason it says full of grace in what we have on the screen, notice I say it's from Latin. Your New Testament was not written in Latin. It was written in Greek. And there was, uh, in the early centuries of Christianity, a Latin translation. And that Latin translation, when rendered into English, comes out full of grace. And so the idea then that Mary was full of grace comes from this translation into English from something that was not the original, original language. So it's completely different, uh, when applied to Mary as when it's applied to Jesus, as we see in John 1, 14. Here's what the Bible says. You have that English phrase, full of grace, but it says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Now notice you got that same English phrase, full of grace and truth. But those are both English translations of a different Greek phrase. 
And as a result, uh, you have full of grace applied to Mary, full of grace applied to Jesus, when in fact they are different things. And in Roman Catholicism, it says she was full of grace and therefore, <clears throat> and therefore she was without sin and the stain of original sin. But you have the same root word that's used in Luke chapter 1 and verse uh, 28. That's translated, should be translated highly favored. You have that same root word used only one other time in the New Testament. And here it is. In Ephesians chapter 1, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given. That word given is a translation of the same root as highly favored in Luke chapter 1 and verse 28. Which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Some translations say bestowed which he has freely favored us in the one he loves. Now, if that meant sinless, then it means that all of us who are Christians are sinless. If it means sinless as applied to Mary, then it would mean sinless as applied to us as well, which would be a great thing. I can look forward to the day when I'm sinless, but none of us are there as yet. So the verb that's translated in Luke chapter 1 and verse 28, that should be favored, and it is that way in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, does not mean sinless. And the form of the word does not mean it's something that you have your entire life. The same form of the verb used in Luke chapter 1 is also used in several other places. Here's an example. Jesus said, in the future, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are, notice the word blessed there. That's the same form of this verb back in Luke chapter 1 and verse 28. Blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Blessed is the same form of the word translated favor in Luke chapter 1 and verse 28. And it clearly cannot mean we've been in a state of perfection that started when we were conceived and then carried throughout our lives. But having scripture to back up what is to be believed is not something that's required in Roman Catholicism, as we will see. And I will show that to you in just a little bit. So one of the errors regarding Mary is that she was conceived without original sin. Another is that she was sinless. And as I pointed out to you, it's sometimes argued that in order for her to give birth to a sinless Savior, she herself would have to be sinless. But that means her grandmother, too, would need to be sinless. And her great-grandmother, at some point, as I said, God is going to have to do the miracle. Catholicism believes that Jesus was virgin-conceived and born, and that's good and correct, but it adds that Mary was born without original sin also. But notice what, a Mary, what Mary says about herself in verse 47 of Luke chapter 1. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why would Mary need a savior if she did not come into the world as everyone else except Jesus did, namely with the guilt and nature that comes from original sin? You see, Catholic apologists have an answer for that. They say, yes, she did need the savior, but God saved her before she actually ever sinned. And because of that, she never actually did. This is all based on the idea that she was immaculately conceived, which we have seen is nowhere found in the Bible as well. 
So there are a number of false teachings surrounding Mary. One is that she was conceived immaculately, and then flowing from that is then the false idea that she was sinless, and then thirdly, that she was always a virgin. She was always a virgin. And so Mary is referred to in Roman Catholicism very often as the ever-virgin Mary, always a virgin. One example comes from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the Roman Catholic Church to confess Mary's perpetual virginity. And so the liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church celebrates Mary as the ever-virgin. Here's the thing. According to the Bible, she was married, and a married virgin would violate Scripture, which commands married couples to engage in physical relations with one another. She remained married to Joseph after the birth of Jesus. And the Bible says if you're a married couple, then you are to come together in physical relations. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other. Further, with regard to the event of the Messiah's miraculous conception being announced to Joseph and to Mary, Here's what the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 1. Joseph did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And not only that, but the Bible says explicitly that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Mark chapter 6. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So Mary had other children after Jesus. Decades later, Jesus' brothers are being referred to in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul who wrote it says this, Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers? And in Galatians chapter 1, one of those brothers is singled out. I saw none of the other apostles, says Paul, only James And he's called the Lord's brother. Now, you might be asking yourself, isn't there a different Bible? I mean, don't they have, don't Roman, doesn't Roman Catholicism have a different Bible? And maybe it's in there. And so let me just assure you, it's not in there either. None of what we're talking about with regard to Mary, with regard her tradition says as her mother, uh, Saint Anne, none of that is found in the Catholic Bible or any, or any Bible. So errors regarding Mary include she was born without original sin, that she was sinless, that she never had any children after Jesus, and that she was assumed into heaven. That she was assumed into heaven. And this is another pronouncement, again, not found in Scripture. There's nothing in the Bible about the end of Mary's life at all. We know nothing about it from the Catholic Bible or from any other Bible. But it's something that's been pronounced as true by the Pope, and in this case, in the year 1950, 1950. The Pope said this, We pronounce, declare, and define it to be a divinely revealed dogma that the Immaculate Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. So when the resurrection occurs in the future of all of those who belong to Jesus, Mary will not be part of that resurrection because her body has already been assumed into heaven according to this dogma. Notice the year 1950. 
Now, I said a bit ago that ultimately in Roman Catholicism, you need not have Scripture to back up what is claimed because within Roman Catholicism, the final authority for truth is not the Bible alone, but rather, yes, the Bible is one authority, but you have the magisterium of the church and also church tradition, and these three are equal in authority. And so the magisterium, led by the Pope, can declare things to be true, like the Immaculate Conception, like the Assumption of Mary, and they need not be found in the Bible. And so one leading apologist for Roman Catholicism, a man named Carl Keating, he's written a number of books, he runs an organization called Catholic Answers, he says this about the Assumption of Mary's body into heaven. Pope Pius XII said that the Assumption is really a consequence of the Immaculate Conception. So remember, we've seen the Immaculate Conception, and there ain't nothing in the Bible about that. So now flowing out of the Immaculate Conception are these other things, sinlessness, perpetual virginity, and now the Assumption of Mary. It's based upon that. Still, Keating goes on, fundamentalist asks, they ask, where is the proof from Scripture? Indeed. And his answer is this, strictly there is none. The mere fact that the church teaches the doctrine of the assumption as something definitely true is a guarantee that it is true. It's true because the church said it is, according to Keating. Now, notice all of these and all of this, friends, the parallels with Jesus. The parallels with Jesus. Jesus was miraculously conceived, so was Mary. Jesus was sinless, so was Mary. Jesus was raised, so was Mary. So you have it in effect now, deified a female counterpart to Jesus, even though there's very little about her in Scripture. Now, I've mentioned to you the places in the Bible where Mary is mentioned, just a handful. I have an article for you, if you'd like it. It's a four-page article. We've copied it. We have it in our resource center. It's on the counter. You can go in there and just take one of those. But it's an article from Newsweek magazine from several years ago. And this particular issue of Newsweek magazine was devoted to what the Catholic Church teaches about Mary. And the reason that they devoted this issue in 1997 to Mary is because at the time there was a movement, worldwide movement, to ask the Pope to define and declare a new dogma regarding Mary, namely that she is the co-redeemer with Jesus of the human race. Now, that has not yet happened, but this article talks about that and the movement and the petition to do that. In that article, and I encourage you to read it, the Newsweek writers have a little inset that says this, precious little, colon, Mary in the Bible. Precious little, Mary in the Bible. And then they list the handful of places where Mary is mentioned in the Bible. It says nothing of her birth or death, only what we know about her involvement in the birth and death of Jesus. All right. So those are a bunch of errors related to, to Mary. It explains in part why many of us have gone through church our entire lives and we haven't heard much about Mary because of all of the errors associated with it. But it's a mistake for us to then go in the opposite direction and say nothing about Mary because the Bible does have some things to say about her and the things they say that it says are important. 
What is mentioned about her is a sterling example of a godly woman. So I say in your outline, all Christian women should be aware of the errors about Mary, but also, secondly, all Christian women should be motivated by the example of Mary. And we see the example of the godly woman that Mary was in her response to the announcement that she is going to be the one who bears the Messiah. And she is so excited that she goes to the home of her cousin Elizabeth. Luke chapter 1 goes on to tell us. After the angel has announced this, they have a discussion about it. And in the presence of her cousin, in that context, this is what she says. She prays and sings in verse 47. Excuse me, verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their utmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped the servant Israel, his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. It's a beautiful, spontaneous statement from a godly woman. And I want to quickly point out four things that we see in this song of Mary, as I say, called the Magnificat. That's Latin for glorifies or magnifies the first line found in verse 46. We first see that she's a woman of godly character. Back in verse 26, the Bible says, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Luke says twice in verse 27 that Mary is a virgin. He twice repeats that. And as a physician that Luke was, Dr. Luke could not possibly have misunderstood this technical term. Mary herself would confess this truth later in her interview with the angel. In verse 34, she asked, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Mary had kept herself pure in accord with God's law. The child that was born... Of her had a supernatural parentage and was fully divine as he himself claimed. The emphasis on the virgin birth then is not upon the virgin, but upon the one who was born of the virgin. And so Mary prepared herself for what God might have in the future. She had no idea that it would be this. And then when the time came, she was ready because she had obeyed God. Ladies, prepare yourself for what God has for you. And that preparation is found in obeying him where he has you now. Mary would have needed to seek forgiveness for sin along the way because she was just like us. She was not immaculately conceived. She was born with original sin and with a sin nature like all of us. And thanks be to God, she did that. So she was not perfect, but she was godly. She was a woman of godly character. And you may look back with some regrets. You may look back with a promiscuous history or some other sins where you failed the Lord. The great news is you, like Mary, have access, recourse to God for forgiveness of sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary was a a woman of godly character, secondly. She was a woman devoted 
to God's word, a woman devoted to God's word. She's devoted to God's word, and we see that in the fact that In Mary's song, she alludes to and virtually quotes several times a number of passages of Scripture. Now, I'm just going to go through quickly and give you some of these. But from what I read, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 45, she alludes to a number of passages of Scripture. In fact, much of what she says is very much like the song of Hannah, Samuel's mother. So she was clearly familiar with the Word of God. But when she says in... Verse 46, my soul magnifies or my soul glorifies the Lord. My soul rejoices in the Lord. Hannah says the same thing in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Psalm 34 says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Psalm 35, my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. And so she alludes to those. In verse 47, she says, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. You see that in Isaiah chapter 12. God is my salvation. Isaiah 45. There is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior. In verse 48, she says, He has regarded the humble state of His maidservant. And that's again allusion to Hannah in 1 Samuel. If you'll indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant. Psalm 102. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute. And shall not despise their prayer. Psalm 136. Who remembered us in our lowly state. For he has his mercy endures forever. Again in verse 48. All generations will call me blessed. Leah said the same kind of thing in Genesis chapter 30. All nations will call you blessed. Says Malachi chapter 3 and verse 12. In verse 49. Mary says. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. You find those same phrases in Psalm 71, Psalm 126, 1 Samuel chapter 2, Psalm 111, and Isaiah chapter 57. So Christian women can learn from Mary's example. She was a woman of godly character and she devoted herself to God's word. I ask you, dear ladies, dear sisters, are you devoted to God's word? Are you immersed in God's word? Do you read God's word? Do you believe it? And do you act upon it? That's the example of godly Mary for us. Thirdly, she was a woman of humility. A woman of humility. In verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She was a humble handmaid. And her words are are very clear. Mary, like all believers of all ages, rejoiced in Her Savior God, just as every other woman of faith in her day and before, she recognized her need of God as her Savior and her Redeemer. Her own words communicate a proper view of herself, claiming nothing for herself. She rejoices in God, her Savior. She views herself in a humble state and calls herself a maid servant, a handmaid. This term and its Hebrew equivalents often used in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. It's an especially close parallel to the book of Ruth, chapter 2 and verse 13, where Ruth speaks of finding favor in the exact same terms used by the angel further above in Luke chapter 1. So Mary's an example of a 
godly woman, a woman of God's word, a woman of humility. And finally, she was a woman surrendered to God's will, a woman surrendered to God's will. This is seen plainly in the fact that while she surely had to have some idea of what kind of ridicule and scorn was going to be heaped upon her because of the exposure of her divine pregnancy, she still responds in faith and obedience. Have you ever thought about that? So she's been told, you're going to have this child. On the one hand, that's wonderful news. That's astounding news. It's news that women throughout the generations had hoped to hear because they expected the Messiah. And so godly women had hoped that they would be the bearer of the Messiah. And now she's going to be the one. So she's truly excited about that. On the other hand, how am I going to explain this to Joseph? How am I going to explain this to everyone else? There is going to be, indeed, ridicule and scorn associated with that. But we see that in her life, what she cared about was the will of God being done and the glory of this Messiah to whom she gave birth, the Lord Jesus, being achieved. We see that in the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2. Her desire was for him to show himself and show his power so that he, in turn, would be glorified as was proper. And we see that at the very end of the life of her son at the cross. The Bible tells us in John chapter 19, there is Mary at the foot of the cross. And she is still a follower of Jesus after he has risen from the grave. In Acts chapter 1, after he's gone, risen from the grave, he's ascended back to heaven. There she is with the first followers of the Lord Jesus Christ as one of those followers. So Mary is a woman of godly character. She's a woman of God's word. She's a woman of humility. She surrendered completely to God's will. And so I say in your take-home truth, she's an example of God's grace for every Christian woman. An example of God's grace for every Christian woman. Now as we close, ladies, on this Mother's Day, I encourage you to look at the example of Mary and to seek to emulate that example. It's a godly example. It's given to us in Scripture for good purposes. And in fact, what's said about Mary can be said and should be said about every Christian person. That we're people of godly character, that we're people of God's word, that we're people who are devoted to carrying out God's will. That we show humility, the humility that goes with being creatures in light of who we are compared to our creator. In all of that, that should describe the life of a Christian person, not just a Christian woman. But I say in your take-home truth, she's an example, notice, of God's grace. It's God's grace that produced this in her. It's God's grace that produces it in you. And God's grace is available to you in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers his grace to all of us through his righteous life and his substitutionary death on the cross on our behalf. And so we're going to bow and pray in just a moment. But as we do, I encourage you to avail yourself of the grace of God that is given us, offered us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in turn, having seen that you're a sinner like Mary saw for herself, I rejoice in God, my Savior. Having seen your need for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and receiving him into your life, acknowledging, Lord, I'm a sinner, you're the Savior, I ask you to deliver me from my sin, And I give you my life. He in turn starts his work in you. Gives you his Holy Spirit. 
and day by day begins renewing you from the inside out. It's by God's grace. Let's go to him and ask for it. Father, we thank you for this blessed day, and we thank you for the gift of motherhood and womanhood that we celebrate in it. These are gifts from your good hand. Lord, I ask you to bless then these dear ladies that are here today. Bless my sisters in the Lord. May they rejoice in God, their Savior. May they look to your grace for all of the tasks and all of the challenges that you have placed before them. And Lord, may they look to those who have gone before as models to emulate. May they look to Mary and this godly woman and her character and her devotion to your word and her humility and her desire to see your will carried out. May they too emulate that in their lives, but may they understand as she did that it can only be done by your grace. It's not something that we just conjure up within ourselves, but rather we throw ourselves upon your grace and you are merciful. God grant it to us through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that this Mother's Day, Lord, might be the spiritual birthday of some ladies and men in this room. May you draw some out of the world and to yourself and to the cross of the Lord Jesus who lived a perfect life on our behalf, who died his death on the cross for us and applies both of those when we come to him believing who he is and what he has done for us. And may you then begin your renewing work in their lives from that day forward so that we do what Mary prayed, so that our souls magnify, glorify the Lord. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.